Emmanuel, God is with us, and we get to celebrate that during this Christmas season that the Lord has come, and uh, it's a joy to be able to do that together, and as I was looking at you guys this morning, I just want you to know something, I love you, um, and I'm not being like my son Harrison, when he gets in trouble, he'll like look at me and hold my face and be like, I love you. Uh, we're not in trouble, I just look at you and I'm like, man, you guys are a lot of fun to do life together with. Do me a favor and grab a Bible, uh, get with me to page 843. And we're going to look at a, a section of scripture that m- might be familiar to you. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I want to ask you this uh, before we read it together and pray. I want to ask you if you've ever created margin in, in your life to really ask big and profound questions. I think it's a good thing to do that you would ask questions that you might think you know the answer to. But in our story, we find an individual saying, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And the way that we might put that is, what does salvation really mean? What does it mean to live forever? How how is it that we would encounter a God in a way where we could be saved and live on forever? And that's kind of a heavy-duty question, really. But I think we need to take some some moments in our life and create some margin where we say, I'm going to ask a profound question, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to see what God has to say. And for those of us that kind of go to church, we might think we kind of have all this stuff nailed down, but sometimes it's good to just kind of, again, ask very profound questions and, and then listen and just wait for God to respond. And I remember as an 18-year-old when I was kind of going through a season of life where I was becoming a young, young adult, and uh, I remember thinking to myself uh, that I had inherited a Christian faith, and I knew certain things because I grew up in a Christian household, but I, I began to ask, is this really the truth? Is this really what God is up to in the world? And, and if I didn't grow up in a Christian household, would I still land on these conclusions about God and his salvation and his son and, and these different things? I think it's really good to do that. So this morning, a guy comes up to Jesus and he asks him one of the most profound questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's read the story. We'll pray and then we'll get after it. Luke chapter 10, page 843 in the Bibles we have, Luke 10, starting in 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he went, and he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, we want right now for you to speak. We want to hear your voice loud and clear, and we believe, God, that when you speak, that you make new things. 
that, that you're able to take us, a, a congregation here in McChesney Park, and you're able through your word, by your spirit, to make new realities, to, to change us and inspire us, to transform us and make us gracious and loving and servant-hearted. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased with what we do here together, that you would use this time, Lord, to, to change not only individuals in here, but us as a church community too. Lord, we, we ask that you would do this uh, knowing that this isn't something that we can manipulate or perform, but knowing that you, God, by your spirit can accomplish all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question, verse 25, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man is asking, what is the nature of salvation? Or uh, I'll, I'll kind of use shorthand to talk about the gospel. He's kind of asking, what is the gospel? And the gospel is that message of God's salvation and sending his son. And he's asking that question, and it really sets the Lord up to teach into it. And he does that by asking other questions. He says, okay, well, what do you think? And, and he kind of provokes him to think through his understanding of the Bible and, and how that applies. But, but the question really is, what is salvation? How do you experience it? And Jesus uses that as an opportunity not only to explain and, and uh, instruct on this topic, but also to show how it should apply. So it's one thing to know something about God and know something about salvation, but it's another thing to believe in it in such a way that it shows up in your life. And those things can be different. You can have a huge head knowledge about God and get all the details right, but if you're unwilling to allow that head knowledge to penetrate your heart and for it to become a part of the very fabric of who you are, you can miss the thing entirely. So the gospel explained, we see it in the initial dialogue between Jesus and this man. Jesus answers the man by asking him what he thinks about the scriptures. Verse 26, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? So here's something that we have to grab. Uh, grasp, grapple with, we have to think through the fact that salvation is not at odds with the Bible. That the Bible is actually an instrument that God uses to help people know the way of salvation or eternal life. Um, we should be aware that the Bible itself is the instrument that God has chosen to reveal his plan. It's the message that's in here that God has preserved for us that he uses to awaken people to the realities of faith and the beauty of Christ. In fact, Romans 10, another place in the scriptures, it puts it like this, faith, saving faith, it comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So the word is an instrument that God has chosen to use to help people know something about eternal life. Now, I bring that up because um, I think it has implications for the way that we do church. There's a reason why ordinarily I will read a passage. One reason is the Bible commands me to do that in, in 1 Timothy. But another reason is I actually believe that the Bible's powerful. And so if we read the Bible in church, there's a chance that God, by his spirit, could take what's being read and could actually change somebody's life right on the spot. That's powerful stuff. And so we, we, we do that. I think, there's, I think there are implications that the Bible is the thing that we want people to understand. And I, I bring this up and I kind of harp on it quite a bit because right now in American Christianity, there's a live discussion about whether or not we should even use the Old Testament. And there are some people who are proposing it's such an archaic book and the culture is so far removed from our experience that the Old Testament could actually be an obstacle to somebody believing in Jesus. And to that, I just kind of, I'm taken aback by the whole discussion. And I'm just saying, I actually think that God can communicate to people in a way that's much better than I could. 
That if I'm sitting around thinking I have to present the very best argument and, and I'll kind of bring the, the Old Testament along if I can convince you that it's the Word of God, I, I don't think that I'm crafty enough to do that or creative enough to do that. I think that God, by His Word, can actually accomplish whatever He wants to do. And so the Bible is something that Jesus points to, and He doesn't say, dude, you're a teacher of the law, but man, stay away from that law stuff. Like, if you want to know the way, the way to salvation, if you want to know how to inherit eternal life, you just, dude, you got to get beyond this law stuff. No, Jesus says, what does the Bible say? What is written in the law and how do you read it? So he's, he's making an important point here that, that salvation and the Bible are, are intricately tied together. And we then, as a church, we want to lift high the Bible and just keep going, look, it's this thing, this thing can do something that I can't. I'm going to trust in this, and I'm going to present this in a way that, that communicates that conviction and that reality. But the guy replies, essentially saying, if I could sum it up, it's loving God and loving people. What does the law say? Love God with everything. Like, Cast yourself entirely into, throw yourself entirely into this love of God so that every part of you is, is expressing love for God and similarly love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looks at that response and he goes, that's right. You're, you're getting it right. He doesn't say, no, that was, a, that was silly. You didn't get it. Try again. He realizes that the man understands the Bible and knows some things about what the Bible is about and he can actually commend him and say, that is, that's right now go and practice that. And what he's trying to get to is this reality that you can know something about God, but it really needs to have that heart reality in your own life. That not only should you know the way of salvation, but you should actually live in light of that salvation. Um, and so love God and love people. And one of the things that we see here is that this man's question, even though it's a really good and really important question, he's already determined what he thinks the conclusion is. Look at verse 25. It's telling us that on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So he comes with his question. I'm going to ask him, what do I do to inherit eternal life? But here's what he also comes with, a conclusion in hand. He comes thinking, I know what the answer should be. I want to hear this teacher's response to it. But if it's different from mine, I'm going my way. Now, here's what is troubling to me. I think we still do that. I think that new Christians or people who aren't even Christians yet come to God and they ask a good question like that, but they, come, but they think this way. If what God says doesn't agree with what I think, I can't follow that God. That's incredibly arrogant to think that we would know better than God. And I think that baby Christians or pre-Christians have that kind of disposition that if God says or does anything different than I would anticipate, I can't really believe or trust in him. Mature Christians do the same thing, though. I think most of us would kind of fall into the camp of experts in the law. We, we've, heard, we've been to church. We, we keep going to church. We've read our Bibles. We, we know some things about God. And what do we do? We come to the Bible, and we're ask, we, we might ask a question, but we always think, I already know the answer. I already know what God might say about this topic. And the truth is, what I want to encourage all of us to do is to come with a humility that says, I'm going to come to the scriptures and I'm going to ask questions of the scriptures and then I'm going to expect that God would refine me. I'm not a finished product. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have all the answers in hand. I'm going to expect that a, that a sovereign God might actually do something different than I would because he's powerful and he's all-knowing. 
And, and, and I'm finite, and he's infinite, and I'm weak, and he's strong, and, and I expect that God is going to surprise me. Tim Keller, he puts it like this. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If the God that you kind of craft in your head always agrees with you and always thinks the same way and always does the same things that you would anticipate him to do, you might not actually be dealing with the God of the Bible. You might just be dealing with the God of your imagination. God has permission to surprise us. And we need to, like this man, come to, come to the Lord and say, what do you think about this? And then we should have the humility to expect that he is going to teach us some things that we don't know yet, that he's going to refine us, that he's going to show us things, and he's going to present things in a way that, that we will actually grow in our likeness to Christ. But this man, he, he comes with a different posture. In fact, he wants to justify himself. In fact, you see it in verse 29. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus said, you answered correctly. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes, wait, 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 wait. Okay, I got it right, but... I want to know, what do I need to do to actually love my neighbor? Tell me who my neighbor is. And he's saying, give me a profile of the people that I am obligated to love. Show me what they look like. Show me how they behave. Tell me who it is exactly. I mean, am I obligated to everyone or is it just specific people? And what he's doing is he is trying to, he's trying to deal with his salvation on legalistic terms. And this is what a lot of people do. We want to know what does God require from us? What does he want us to do? And if I, can get that, if I can get that document of what does God want me to do, all I need to do is work really hard to try to accomplish that. Listen, friends, that is not the way to inherit eternal life. You can try that as hard as you want, but you are not going to accomplish salvation by trying to be a good person and checking all these things off. So this man is saying, I'm an expert in the law. I want to know exactly what you want from me, and I will go do that. But I'm trying to justify myself. Many of us do that same thing. It's the, it's the tendency that we have in our human nature to say, I want to earn my salvation. I want to prove that I'm good enough and smart enough, and godly enough to to earn my way into heaven. And God consistently knocks us down a notch and says, no, you cannot justify yourself. I'll do that for you. Thank you very much. And we have to come to grips with that. So the gospel explained is there in that little dialogue where Jesus is teaching us that the, the eternal life that he offers is something that we find in the scriptures And it's something that should show up in the way that we live. So he tells a story because this man doesn't want to buy into this way of salvation. So he tells this incredible story. And I'm sure many of you have heard it before, but a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on his way, on this hostile pathway, he gets mugged. Some robbers jump out. They strip him of his clothes. They take his stuff away from him. They beat him into an inch of his life and, and they leave him half dead laying there. And then Jesus introduces three different characters. And he goes, okay, a priest shows up on the scene and he begins to say, okay, the priest in their culture during their day is kind of the highest order in society. They're people who know God, who deal with God, who do work in the temple. They're, they're, they're the people that you kind of look up to and you go, these are very, very important people. The priest shows up and he sees the man laying there. And what does he do? He excuses himself. He looks at this man who's in need, who's half dead, and he figures out a way to justify I don't have to help him. I'm going to go around. And his excuses may have been really, really good. 
It may have been, I'm a priest, I can't touch anything that's bloody, I will be unclean, I can't do my job. I'm a priest, I can't be around a dead person, I'm not even sure if this guy's alive. I can't do this. This isn't on me. This is not my neighbor. And he excuses himself. And similarly, a Levite shows up. This is the second kind of rung on the social ladder during that day and age. Another priest type person, but this person uh, does music and organizes the temple and watches over things. But, but now you've got a priest, walks around, the Levite does the same thing, excuses himself. This isn't my neighbor. This isn't my problem. I don't have to deal with this. Now, the third character is introduced, and this is the surprising part. The third character, if you were kind of walking down the hierarchy, it should be priest, Levite, Jewish individual. But here's what he does. He just says, there's a Samaritan. Samaritans are a half-breed. The Jews um, do not like them because Samaritans are people who Jewish by descent, but they intermarried with some other people, and they began to adopt their religions. And so the Jews would look at the Samaritans and be like, they're idolaters, they're troublemakers, they do not keep their commitments to God. And so there's a hostility there. There's, a, there's this kind of built in, these people do not get along, they are enemies. And Jesus is saying, but a Samaritan shows up on the scene and he sees this person in need. He finds this man half dead and what does he do? In compassion, he moves toward him. He took pity on him. And he begins to care for and love and serve this individual. He bandages his wounds. He uses medicinal things, oil and wine. He, he takes care of this person. He puts him on his own mode of transportation and he takes him to a place where he can receive even greater care. He takes money out of his wallet and he says, look, I'm, I'm footing the bill for this guy. Whatever this thing is gonna cost, you just put it on my account because I wanna make sure that this person is adequately resourced for the level of care that they're gonna need. The, the Samaritan moves toward this man in need and begins to minister to him. So what we're seeing then, uh, Jesus says the question, which of these three, verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He asks that very profound question. Who is it that really behaved like a neighbor? And the guy answers, verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him the one who had mercy on him. I mean, he had no other choice but to say the one who cared for, even though he was a Samaritan, the one who, even though they were enemies, the one who cared for him was actually the neighbor in the story. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now, here's the point that I think this story is making. Jesus is trying to show us something that when you actually believe in the gospel message, when you actually have eternal life, the way of salvation, it actually should show up in the way that you deal with other people. So the way that you love and serve and care for those in need is an evidence of whether or not you really do believe the message. So Jesus is essentially saying, you answered correctly but if you believed what you said, and it wasn't just a head knowledge, but it was a heart knowledge, it would show up in your life. You wouldn't be trying to excuse yourself from caring for other people. You'd actually be moving toward them. If you really believed what you claimed to be true, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, if that really clicked, you would actually care very well for those who are in need, even those who are natural born enemies. So Jesus is showing us here this ministry of mercy. And he, I, I think what he's doing is he's showing us that when you believe the message of salvation, it begins to show up in the way that you live your life. And so what we want to do then is we want to become people who are good at this, that we actually love the unlikely, 
that if we're believers in Christ and we have salvation in this way of eternal life, I want for that to show up in my life, that I'm walking around and I see somebody in need and I, I move toward them. I don't excuse myself. I love people who are difficult to love. I love people who are natural born enemies. The writer Anne Lamott puts it like this. She said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. That's, you're just saying, I'm following a God, but I don't like these people. I'm not obligated to care for them. Now, this week I was reflecting on that and I was just thinking, man, churches are not great at this. Usually we kind of tell people what they need to behave like and what they need to look like and, and all these things. And, and our love is kind of confined. We have boundaries to the way that we care for people. I want to be a church where real sketchy people can come in here and experience profound love because we're gospel people loving and serving people in a gospel way. In fact, uh, those of you that are pursuing membership, we gave you a little green book. If you remember this, it's a little green book called The Gospel. The whole point of it is by Ray Ortland. The whole point is you can have a great confession of faith, but here's what's really significant. What you say you believe should show up in your culture. If you really confess the gospel, it should show up in the, in the relationships and the quality of things going on within the, within the church and how you deal with people. And I hope that as a church, we get good at this, that we love people, that other people are happy to walk around they're sketchy. They're, they're not doing what we think they should do. We're, we're excused from having to care for them. Not around here. Let's move toward and let's love and serve and care for. And let's recognize that God is often calling us to care for those who are natural born enemies. And if we're, if we're living in the power of the gospel, we can do it. So Jesus, again, is essentially saying, if you really believed what you confess, then it would show up. He's calling us to this ministry of mercy, to love the unlikely. And I think it's going to involve some pretty significant things. I think if you're saying, I'm going to do this, I, I'm willing to bet that it's going to involve a sacrifice of time, of money, of energy, your safety, and your resources. That's what this Samaritan had to do for this individual. He had to give up a lot of his privileges. He had to put himself in harm's way as he was slowing down on this very hostile pathway. And other robbers could have come and he could have been the very next guy to get hurt. But, but he was willing, because of his mercy, because of his love, he was willing to sacrifice his own stuff for the sake of other people. I think if we're going to do that, there's going to be sacrifice. And so this week I was praying about it and I was thinking, okay, how do we do this? I wonder if a couple of you tomorrow morning might wake up and you're so fired up. You're like, that was, uh, I, won't, I won't embellish too much, but maybe you're like, that was an okay sermon. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to serve other people. And you just get after it and you orient your life around that, that principle. But many of us, here's what I'm realizing. We need baby steps. If we're actually going to serve people, we probably just need to start moving in that direction and taking small steps. We're, you know, some of us might wake up and be self-sacrificial and love well. Many of us just need to start practicing the little things and grow in that direction. And so I think there are a couple things you could do that would help you. One is um, do life with other people. If you're in a group, if you're doing life with other Christians and you begin to talk these things out loud, then you have a level of accountability. You said it to other people. You heard yourself say it. They might even check in on you. And the things that we might come up with 
They, they, they might not be earth-shattering things. We're in our small group this week, and we're saying, okay, what, what is it going to look like for us to serve people? And Mike says, uh, this week I'm just going to try parking further away uh, so that other people could park in the front row. And it's like, dude, that's cool. That's not, I mean, it's not like you're starting a ministry or doing something hugely profound, but it's just saying, I'm, taking, I'm moving in that direction. I'm going to do something in order to bless other people. We need these little these little baby steps to help us grow in our ability to serve well. Um, another thing that you could do is you could just start volunteering at church. I think that the opportunities that we have at church and making that a part of your schedule, it will, it, it'll train you to actually be thinking in that way, that I want to have a servant-heartedness, and, and wherever I see need, I'm going to meet it. But one of the ways that I train my heart is I do that systematically at church. I volunteer once a month, or I volunteer a couple weekends a month. And, and let me just tell you about the opportunities that we have, and um, we'll do this too. I'll throw the phone number up on the screen behind me, and if you think, okay, I do want to do something with this message. I want to serve. Then I'll, You could do this. You could text the word serve to our McChesney Park campus line, 815-206-8612. Now, for some of you, I'm well aware that our system has been broken before. Some of you have said, I want to volunteer, and we did not do a good job of following up with you or getting you placed in the right spot, or, or you got plugged in, you did one week, and there was no follow-up from there, and you kind of got dropped off. And to that, I, anyone who had that experience, I'm very, very sorry. We're working to change that. In fact, Janet Murray is our volunteer coordinator to make sure that no ball is being dropped as somebody says, I'm going to serve. I'm going to volunteer. So text that number if you're interested in finding a place to kind of make this a habit of your life to grow in your ability to serve. But let me just remind you of the opportunities. We are a portable church. Every Sunday, every Sunday, we come in with a trailer and we offload a bunch of carts and we set everything up. 6.30 a.m., trailer rolls in, unload the trailer, start setting everything up. That's a lot of work. We do it at the end of the day as well. We put it all back in the trailer and we cart it away. We would love more people to be on that team and be trained and equipped to do that thing well. We've got a hospitality team. We've got some coffee that gets brewed up in the morning. We've got water. We've got you know, hand towels and things that go in the bathrooms. We've got some stuff that just needs to get set up in there and we'd love to have more people on that team. We've got a team that does greeting. We want to make sure that if a visitor comes in here, a new person comes in here, that they are warmly welcomed. And, and that means that we have, you know, essentially people at the door, but also people who their job that morning is to identify anyone who's potentially new and go up to them and make sure I'm getting their name, I'm finding out their story, I'm making sure that as a church we're serving them well. We want them to have the very best possible experience anytime they come. We've got our kids ministry. This morning, 32 kids, 13 adults. That's not okay. And in fact, the ratios aren't even what we would like them to be. We need adults who are out there who are willing to invest in the next generation. I mean, a huge chunk of our church is actually in the kids area. And if we're going to be passionate about the next generation, we should staff that well. And that means adults in each of the classrooms, multiple adults and people helping. You can hang on to babies. You can carry babies around. You can, you can teach lessons. There's lots of opportunities out there, but we'd love more people to be plugged in in our kids' ministry. We have security. We have tech stuff. We have worship. Here's what I'm saying. Every Sunday, there's a potential for 30 to probably 60 people to serve. That's a lot. Every Sunday, 
and you could make a habit of serving and grow in your likeness to Christ. You could begin to kind of pursue this as a way of life by simply leveraging your week-by-week experience here at church. I think that would be a great thing. And we do a nine o'clock service, by the way. If it's an inconvenience for you, we do nine o'clock so you don't have to miss church. You can come at nine, do your thing, serve at the 1030. We would love for that to happen. So Jesus is presenting for us this ministry of mercy, looking at needs and meeting those needs. And I hope that as a church, we embrace this high calling and we go after it. But here's what I need to do for for all of us. And it's what I think Jesus does here. He answers the question of what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And I think unless we get that solved, all of our best efforts at serving is going to be in vain in a certain way. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus is helping this guy to understand the gospel, right? Somebody was asking me, it's probably been six months, they were reading this and they said, hey, Cor, is the the parable of the Good Samaritan just a story about salvation by works? That if you want to have eternal life, you just have to do some things, love people well, love your enemy. And it really got me thinking, like, how does the gospel work here? Because the rest of the Bible says, no, that's not how it works. You don't get saved by how you care for people. You get saved by trusting in Christ. Well, how does that show up in our story this morning? Jesus is going to show us here within the story itself that in order for us to love well and serve well, we actually have to be gospel people. Look at this. The first thing that comes up is that we cannot justify ourselves. The man wanted to prove himself. He wanted to justify himself. And and that's built into who we are. All of us are kind of on this self-salvation project. God, what do I need to do? Just make it very clear and I'll try very hard. And the truth is that won't work. Try as you might, you saving yourself is not going to be the answer to this thing. One of the reasons why is the demand is way too high. He's saying, love God and love people. Okay, what does that look like exactly? Well, it looks like you go to the the exact person who you would not want to love and you love them supremely. And most of us in here shouldn't be like, huh, got that, roger that. I'm going to go tackle that this week. I'm going to love my enemy. Listen, I struggle with loving my favorite people, my wife and my kids. There are moments where I'm like, I know I'm supposed to love you, and I'm not doing a very good job at that. So how is it that we could, with integrity, say, if God wants me to love my enemy, I'm going to crush that. I'm going to do such a great job of loving my enemy. That's my strategy. No, the demand is way too high. What Jesus is saying is, read, read what the Bible says. You can't do it. You can't justify yourself. You can't love people well enough to inherit eternal life. You're going to have to do something different. All right, what, what is it? How, how, how do we get that different thing? And it's actually in the story. The man is asking, tell me who my neighbor is. And he begins to tell, Jesus tells the story with, you know, four different characters. And the man is, I would, I would assume he's kind of expecting to hear him show up in, in, in the story, right? Like, what do I need to do? Okay. Three different people coming along this road. They find this one dude on, on the road. And I'm sure he's sitting there like, oh, I can't wait to get to the hero, me. Like, I can't wait till he writes me into the story and I see myself and I go, dude, I'm so awesome. I'm the good Samaritan. I'm, you know, I'm going to care for people and I'm going to love people. No, that's not how the story works. He actually writes the dude into the story. Do you know who he is? The guy on the side of the road. If you, if, if you want to understand the way to eternal, eternal life, you're the dude on the side of the road. 
You're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. You're the one who is in that desperate condition, left half dead, naked, barely hanging on. And Jesus says, I'm going to love you and I'm going to serve you and I'm going to provide for you. and I'm going to care for you and I'm going to transport you to where you need to go. I'm going to, I'm going to take my own resources and give them to you. And I'm going to make sure that you have everything that you would need. That's what the gospel is. Jesus is saying, you can't save yourself. You can't earn your way into heaven. You have to recognize I'm a broken person and I'm a needy person, and God in love has sent his son for that very reason. He loves me, and he provides for me, and he meets me in my place of greatest need, and he has determined that he is going to do what's necessary for me to live. That's the good news of the gospel. And so in this story, Jesus is essentially saying the way to salvation is to just realize you're broken. We have to humble ourselves and just recognize we cannot save ourselves, but God in Christ can. And we have to surrender and trust him. And here's, here's how I think this thing works then. That if you trust in that gospel, and if you believe that you're a saved individual, that God has met you at your greatest point of need and done everything for you for life and godliness, what does that do to you? You no longer start you know, keeping score. Who am I supposed to care for? What does that look like? What is my obligation as a believer? You just start realizing, if God loved me that extravagantly, then I'm going to move toward anybody that I find in need because that's how God dealt with me. He loved and served me so well, I'm going to love and serve other people. And there's no boundary to this thing. I'm going to love anybody that I find in a broken condition and I'm going to do what I can to care for their needs. So I'm going to invite the band to come up and and we're going to pray in just a moment. We're going to sing again to God, but I want to just spend a moment reflecting on what what does this look like for each of us? Have we really surrendered to the Lord himself? Um, Have we trusted in him, realizing that we need his saving work in our lives? So let me pray. Lord, in here this morning, a lot of us have come in with a a pretty big bag of self-righteousness. And we're just trying to justify ourselves. And even being here today is, is proof of it. We kind of, if we're honest, we kind of think it's on us. If we do enough good stuff, we behave in a certain way, we go to church, we say the right stuff, we're good. But God, I'm grateful that you continually knock us down, that you continually remind us of our need, that, that we are people who are desperately in need of help. And you also provide that help for us in your son. You sent him as our savior, our Lord, our king, and our rescuer, Lord. Help us to embrace that. That First and foremost, everyone in here, Lord, help us each to embrace the fact that we need the gospel. But God, we don't want to stop there. We realize that you want us to be gospel people in this world. And there's a ton of need and a ton of brokenness, and it isn't unique to us in here. Help us to march out of here with a gospel confidence that we could be agents of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, don't let us put boundaries where you've not put boundaries. Help us to love people well even those who are very, very different from us. We need your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.